My guest today was described by a colleague in 2012 as follows. He is a sharp, intelligent, and enthusiastic business professional. He has a thirst for knowledge and a passion for cloud computing. He established a reputation for delivery, innovation, and client satisfaction, and I'm sure is destined for great things in the future. Well, that turned out to be very prescient because today he is the VP and General Manager for EMEA for G2. And if you don't know who G2 are, they are the leading B2B review platform with over 1 million reviews read by more than 4 million technology buyers every month. Henrique Aragao, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. That is uh, quite the introduction. Uh, well, it's... It's, it, it's what was interesting about it was when it was written and how yeah. preceded it has become. So I, I thought that was quite, <laughs> quite, uh, quite cool. Um, tell me a little bit, Enrique. You're, you're from Brazil originally, and I know you spent time in the UK back and forth. Tell me what that was like growing up. What sort of a, a background it was, and talk to me a little bit about some of the values that you learned as a kid that probably has stood you in good stead and how people were able to pick you out as a leader back that far, about nine years ago now. Yeah. Um, it's funny to think about what I was doing in 2012. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Brazil, uh, in Rio de Janeiro, which is a beautiful part of the world. Um, upper middle class family, um, blessed with, um, uh, you know, very good education for my parents. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, growing up, we just knew, you know, we grew up knowing that education, hard work, um, and securing, securing, uh, a, a stable job is basically what you look for in, 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 you know, growing up somewhere like Brazil. But I had, uh, the benefit of having, uh, parents who got moved around, um, and also to the UK, uh, and I also had a, I always had a thirst for um, having uh, the opportunity to build a life outside of Brazil. Um, it's a beautiful country, an amazing economy, uh, but very much an economy that is predominantly based on export of natural resources. Um, and so, you know, if you grow up in Brazil, you're probably going to end up um, wanting to work for a big oil company or a big mining company. I did an internship uh, at a, a Brazil's largest mining company uh, during my university years. Um, or you strive to uh, get accepted for an internship at a large multinational and then secure a job for life. Um, you know, when I when I think back to the 80s, you know, and 90s, and I look at what's going on in South America today, especially from the lens of um, technology, which is the world that I've um, come to build my career in. It's been really interesting to see just how much that country has changed. Um, but for me, it was always get into great schools, get great grades, and um, and hopefully secure yourself a, a decent job. Um, but that wasn't to be. <laughs> uh, I, I ended up, uh, I, I worked for about uh, a couple of years in Brazil, and I decided to uh, apply for a master's uh, degree in the UK. Um, and, um, and yeah, when I came over to the UK in my uh, early 20s, I eventually got into technology 
uh, into tech companies. And that that quote from 2012, I think, is uh, at that time I was a pre-sales consultant wanting to get into sales, uh, and that was nine years ago. Snap. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had that exact same experience pre-sales, wanting to get into sales, naively thinking it was easy. Yeah. Yeah. But and um, you also went the consulting route. Yeah. Yeah. So my first, uh, well, my first sales job was in technology consulting. Well, basically technology implementations. Um, so not management consulting, but um, technology implementations. Um, but uh, I, I started off in... Uh, a company that was doing implementations of a rather unknown uh, customer relationship management uh, cloud-based technology called Salesforce. Uh, and we were a 30-person company based out of the UK. Uh, and within a few years, we were over 250 people with the largest number of certified Salesforce consultants uh, in Europe. Um, and this at a time we had we had more certified consultants knowing how to implement Salesforce than Accenture, Deloitte, Capgemini, all the big system integrators. So it was an amazing time, and I think I was very lucky to fall into that space. Uh, but yes, selling selling professional services is, is I think a really good introduction into the world of sales. Right, it's very intangible, and um, it's very much uh, no no two no two engagements are ever the same. So that was a really good introduction into sales for me. Was that where you said you met your wife, Laura? Uh, no, 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 so, no. My wife, Laura, we, we met um, prior to prior to 2012. We met we met at a HR tech company called Thompson's Online Benefits. Um, I was actually a product manager. Uh, I was um, I was helping bring products to market. My wife Laura was a sales rep, and um, and she actually gave me the inspiration to want to get into sales because I'd been brought up with this idea. I think it's very common in in developing countries, you know, that you you load up on degrees and and you know if you're not going to go and become an engineer or a doctor, um, you better have a lot of good degrees so you get good jobs. And that's kind of like the route that I took, uh, which ultimately gave me a passport to be able to emigrate and find economic opportunities abroad, which would have been limited for me in Brazil. But I see that a lot from colleagues that I work with that come from, you know, from places like India, for example, right? Um, it's very much a, a technical focus. Anyway, my wife, Laura, um, she never went to university. She doesn't hold a university degree. And uh, she was, well, she is a bit younger than me, about three years younger than me. And I met her at this company and she was taking me out um, to do demos for clients and I kind of like thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I like I like engaging with customers. Um, and then I found out that she was earning um, five times as much as I was, right? Yeah. And I you thought, talked oh, about this. inspiration. <laughs> there, there it was, right there. Yeah, yeah. And so I credit her with sort of giving me the proverbial kick up the butt to really think long yeah. and hard about, um, you know, taking destiny into one's own hands and, and thinking about, mm. okay, what is it going to take to take an entrepreneurial mm. approach to, to your life and your career. Um, so, you know, no, no, no formative story of how I used to, you know, sell lemonade by the streets. It was really, I was a late, I was a late yeah. bloomer when it came to sales uh, and yeah. I credit her yeah. with that. Yeah. I'm curious how your parents would have reacted when they realized you weren't going for this safe job that you were now in sales, something that you don't need a university degree 
for and here's you stacked up with masters yeah 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 uh it's funny i know, i remember exactly um uh my mother uh, uh was very suspicious you know she she actually warned me and said you know don't that they're, they're promising you that you can earn all this money and you know but actually you know it's um it's really risky and you know it's you know it's all tails and you must be careful um because there's not a lot of security and you know and uh, and i think as well i think you know you know, bless her. She, she, she you know, she's coming from a, a position of where I think a lot of people that are ill-informed about um, the sales profession, right? Which is that you're not the kind of person that should be doing sales, Enrique. Right? You've got all these degrees. You're very smart. Uh, you know, and um, you should be you should be doing some other kind of job. So it was it was interesting. But at that point, you know, I you know I've done my research. I, I knew exactly what it entailed, and I was very excited about it. And um, and I think that it's the fact that it's a very entrepreneurial um, career that attracted me to it. And, and in a way, uh, being in, being an immigrant, coming from you know fairly fairly comfortable upbringing uh, somewhere like Brazil, um, you know, I had a very blessed upbringing um, from that perspective. Um, doing making the decision to leave everything behind and go into a country, especially coming from a Latin family where you know you're very very protected. It's very very close knit. Uh, type of upbringing um i was i, I was always due to take some kind of risks yeah yeah no but it is it is a brave move um but it's one that's paid off handsomely tell me a little bit about because from what i've read you didn't just end up in g2 by accident it's something that you kind of went after from some time ago not the particular job but it was somebody who had worked for and you kind of went after them again if you were ever doing this and there was at the time G two worked in Europe, and you were kind of saying, "Well, look, why don't we start it here?" Just, but I'm sure I have the details wrong, but that's that's the impression it had that it was something that you you I won't say you created, but you crafted. Mm. That be fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, I have I have quite a lot of different uh, companies that I've been in in the last mm. ten or so years. But actually, I've only ever worked for uh, two uh, people really in that time. Um, so, you know, the, uh, the the professional services company called Tequila uh, was acquired by Accenture, and one of our early early day CEOs, um, after I was at Accenture for about a year, um, quite unhappy because it wasn't really a it wasn't really an organization that embraced like the sales profession, right? It's um, mm. it's, a, it's a different culture, right? Anyway, one of my one of my early stage CEOs he introduced me to um, uh, a guy called Goddard Abel, who's uh, an entrepreneur from from the U.S. who um, had a company that uh, was a product company built on the Salesforce platform. Um, and, and Goddard effectively gave me a shot, um, this 20 something year old that had maybe four or five years sales management experience, but I knew everyone in Salesforce in Europe because I'd spent the last five years working alongside them as a consultant, gave me a shot to, um, to work as, uh, the VP of EMEA for his company. Um, and Goddard is also the CEO of G2. Um, and so. 
I actually reached out to Goddard and my old boss, CRO Matt Gorniak, um, when they were, they were, they'd left Salesforce, they were building G2. And I always wanted to be, continue to be a part of the entrepreneurial family that they had built. And, um, and I wanted to start earlier, right, uh, in, in one of their ventures. And, and so I reached out when, I think when we raised Series C funding in October 2018. Yeah. And, um, and I said, hey, you know, let's, let's build Europe. And it's funny because when I look at a lot of uh, US SaaS companies, they tend to come to Europe later. Right. So at the time we were only doing about 30 million ARR as a business. And, you know, we've only just had Gong land in Europe already many, many years. Well, I think over 12 months after already being valued at a unicorn status. Um, mm. I think companies like Outreach came much later as well. But I think, uh, I think we did it, we did it early and we did it at the right time. Um, yeah. but it was, a, it's been a great experience and it's the first time for me that I've really, I feel really learnt a lot about uh, revenue leadership and I've become more focused on being what we like to call a conscious leader as well in the last yeah. three years. It's been an amazing experience and, and I credit Goddard uh, for that. Yeah. It's a testament to both of you that you believed in each other so much. Um, it's really interesting to see that it's not something that come across so often. I, I want to come back to the conscious leadership in a moment. Tell me a little bit about though, as, as you went through that transition, or that journey, I guess, what were the kind of challenges you, that you came up against that you weren't expecting? Um, well, definitely how long it takes. Um, so you think of it this way, right? So I've, I've just done my second tour of duty, bringing a US business into, into the EMEA region, right? The first yeah. time I did it was under the umbrella of Salesforce, that, that company that Goddard hired me to, um, to run Europe for. Uh, my first interview was with him and, and with our CRO, Matt Gorniak, um, who were running what was known at the time as Steelbrick, a configure price quote um, application that was built on, on the Salesforce CRM for pricing and quoting managing contracts. My last interview was with the president of EMEA for Salesforce because the company had been acquired in, in that period. So I actually spent my three years building this European business in, in uh, you know, inside Salesforce. And so when I came to G2, you know, I had a lot of um, a lot of con preconceptions about how quickly we were going to scale the business. You know, we scaled uh, just in Europe a forty million dollar business in three years. I'm I'm sat here talking to you um, three years, almost three years um, into G two, um, and I can tell you we're probably below half of that number in the same period, right? Um, and that's for a number of reasons, but. Um, but definitely, you know, if, if you're doing it alone and not part of a massive ecosystem, it takes longer. So that was one learning and, and building the team, getting the team up to productivity. Um, when you don't have partners and you don't have uh, an ecosystem to rely on, um, means it's, it takes longer. Uh, and also yeah. being a true regional leader rather than just a sales manager within a region. Um, you know, there's a bunch of things I hadn't thought of, like building the brand in the region. Um, you know, I've, you know, I've had to sort out offices and, uh, legals and HR and benefits and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, if you're only thinking that I've only got a revenue number on my, on my shoulder, like you don't think about all these things. 
Um, but also all of the supporting functions um, related to revenue from customer success, support, um, business development, SDRs, BDRs, um, figuring out demand generation and marketing in regions. So all of these things for me were a big jump from focusing just on sales to focusing on revenue um, without all of the same kind of infrastructure that you had in a large technology company. So it's been a very exciting period um, to go through all of those. Uh, and they slow you down, you know, that those kind of things slow you down. But once you get going, sure. the momentum then is much more exciting than it would be at a large company yeah. because yeah. in a large company, you're fighting for so much resources with other cost centers. Whereas when you're running your region and you found your version of product market fit and things are humming, you can put a lot of fire, a lot of a lot of fuel in that fire, and that's really exciting. That's a lot of hats to wear in in, in any one role. It sure is, and I'm curious to know out of all of those because it's probably the one role where you're you're wearing as many hats that that you can wear in in an organization. Is there anyone in particular that you gravitated to naturally that you almost had to, not almost, you probably had to discipline yourself to come back for because there was so much to be done. You don't want to say that there's a kind of a, a, a comfort zone that you go to and that when you've got so many hats to wear, you have to kind of pull yourself back because there's other tasks and, and goals that need attending to. And I'm mm -hmm. just curious, was there something in that that you, you found yourself gravitating to a lot? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've always been very data-driven. Um, I did very well in sales originally because I came from a uh, pre-sales background uh, and consulting. Uh, and so I've been a very data-driven sales leader. And so one of the one of the areas that I index very highly on is a lot of the sales operations, revenue operations side of things. Um, and so I think that because I went quite deep in that in terms of figuring out um, our revenue funnel and all of the all of the elements around managing the PL for the region. I, I went quite heavily on that and and Ooh. kind of took my eye off the ball in terms of I think definitely at the first the first uh portion of the journey, you know, on things that I, I now value so much, uh such as really building um building strong teams and, and developing people. Um Ooh. But yeah, you know, I, I think I buried myself in a lot of spreadsheets. Um, was very operationally focused, uh, and I also probably delayed our investments in, in that kind of that side of the house. Um, but it's definitely something that is a strength of mine, and I leverage it. Um, but yeah, to your point, I had to bring bring myself back in a bit, and and we now have a fantastic director of operations here in region, who's um, Molly Molly O'Hare. She's uh, she's phenomenal, and and she's just like taken you know what i started and just taken it to a whole nother level um and so it's been great so on the flip side of that then what would you say would be the skill that you needed to develop most in order to grow the business um well look i think i came out of salesforce with really strong um skills around sales management um i can manage a sales business very effectively, I feel, off the back of learning so much um, in my role there. Um, and what I was saying earlier that I really started to sort of focus more on, uh, specifically through focusing on, on concepts 
that uh, come out of uh, conscious leadership uh, is really focusing on more self-awareness, uh, uh, learning to understand more about myself, but also about others, uh, and how important it is to not only bring in the right people, but bring in people that you can really see where they might end up in two or three years time. Um, I think I definitely shifted from having a next quarter or even this financial year mentality to having a next uh, eight quarters, next two or three year mentality. And at the heart of that, it's not, uh, it's not the sales metrics. It actually is the people. Um, and, you know, we're at a position now three years in where we have an amazing uh, leadership team. We have amazing sellers. Um, we have amazing people managers, the majority of whom have come along with us from the very beginning. And that's something that I think, you know, I really honed in on uh, here at G2. Um, and I'm really, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be, have been able to work on this stuff. I'm fascinated by this whole concept of conscious leadership. And I was curious to know what, what for you were the aha moments as you went through the process? Um, well, look, I think, I think we, we tend to, I think we tend to react with our limbic system too much. Um, and I think we, we, a lot of people coast through life, um, with little awareness as to how they are reacting to the world around them. Um, and at the core of, of being a more conscious leader or a more conscious person really is having self-awareness about the fact that, you know, everything that we feel and everything that we do is an interpretation of the world around us, right? Um, and with conscious leadership, there's this concept of there being a line and at every, any point in time, you're either going to be above the line or below the line. And below the line is where most of us tend to spend unconsciously um, our time, right? When things that are happening around us are happening to us, uh, we're driven by a need to feel right and uh, to be the, purvey the, the owners of the truth, right? And we tend to, and we tend to also gravitate towards one of the three corners of the, the I think it's the drama triangle they call it, right? Uh, you know, being Ooh, a hero, yeah, 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 moving to hero, yeah. uh, to victim, uh, or to blame. Yeah. Um, and being conscious of when you're below the line and having a shift to moving above the line is when we shift from um, a position of um, wanting to be right to um, just being curious about what's true. Um, and really leading from a position of wonder and curiosity, um, honoring um, speaking truth, right? And speaking our truth uh, and honoring our story and ultimately as well, this concept of taking 100% responsibility um, for the conditions that you find yourself in, right? What does, and asking yourself every time, what does right now taking 100% responsibility for the condition I find myself in, for the conditions of my life look like? Um, Can you talk me through the application of that? Maybe give me an example of a moment where you were looking at this idea of taken ownership of something. Um, I just want to understand what that feels like. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most trying moments for me, my career actually happened recently. I think it's for many, for many people as well, which was dealing with um, the impacts of the COVID pandemic on um, our businesses and our livelihoods. Um, 
And as you can imagine, that is the perfect opportunity for you to go below the line and blame everything else for what's going on, right? Because your budgets have been cut, your customers aren't renewing, um, you know, uh, demand has gone down and, 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 and also you're having to have really crappy conversations with people because, you know, you've had to cut budgets and, uh, you know, we've had, we had to let go of people and it's very easy to, um, you know, to put the blame, right. And to victimize oneself because, you know, it's very easy to do that. But I think, um, going back to, a lot of the coaching that uh, I was doing during that period and also reflecting on what does it mean to take 100%, 100% responsibility for co the conditions I find myself in right now. Um, you know, we had a fantastic, um, we had a fantastic uh, recovery from, from the pandemic and, and the impacts of the pandemic on our business. And a lot of that was down to really asking ourselves what is, it, what is within the scope of our uh, abilities to that to take the the situation we find ourselves in um and not just learn from it but actually build on it uh, and for us you know that meant figuring out what is the business opportunity within this context um how do we avoid um having to let go of more people by retraining and repositioning our staff to roles within the business that stand to benefit from the situation. I can tell you for us, it was that, you know, we knew we were gonna take a massive hit on um, renewals. So customer churn was gonna go through the roof. But interestingly enough, G2, um, and if you think G2, we, we, we service uh, and we serve marketers primarily who are looking to connect with the uh, 70 million uh, buyers that come to G2 to research software every year. It is basically an online um, trade conference that's on no, that's that's on 24 7 uh, 365 days of the year and what we saw was a massive opportunity to take on a lot of the frozen budgets for trade conferences and events and shift those to digital channels of which we became one and so what we actually did is we 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 actually forecasted a significant amount of customer churn uh, and invested in customer acquisition in new business acquisition um, with a lot of messaging and value proposition work around um, driving, uh, well, transitioning your budget from trade conferences into digital channels like G2. Um, but most importantly, we we moved a lot of our team members from those pure, because they have hunters and farmers at G2, from those um, account management roles into account executive roles. Uh, and if we had let, if we had continued to go down the same path, we would have had to let go of more people, uh, people who today are thriving, who have been promoted and are doing the best works of their lives. So, you know, I, I do credit um, the frameworks and the, the approach from conscious leadership of really asking yourself, what does taking 100% responsibility for my situation right now mean um, to allowing us to, to thrive through that period? That's, that's really fascinating. It sounds to me when you talk about conscious leadership, it's really self-leadership first, at least. It almost comes across as a as a sort of a blue pill, red pill, <laughs> a matrix type awakening that you become aware of, conscious of uh, your place in the world and your place in your industry and your company and the relationship mm. you have with 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 your colleagues and so on. And uh, it it's it it's a I'd imagine it's not a chasm 
that everybody gets to cross because it does require a huge amount of vulnerability and willingness and awareness. And not everybody has the self-awareness to be able to do it. So uh, it's fascinating to hear it from somebody who, who, who's been through it, probably stood... I don't think you ever just go, oh, I've been through it. You're always going through it. Or at least you're always applying the principles. Um, I, I was curious to know a little bit about also um, maybe some of the, I guess call them myths or commonly held beliefs about your industry that you would disagree with or you feel that are just not true or, or not right that need to be communicated differently. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, look, I'm, I'm in the industry of um, B2B digital marketing and demand generation, um, but also I'm in sales, right? Um, I've really enjoyed being at G2, working very closely with um, marketing professionals. It has taught me so much about how to build businesses, how to drive revenue. It's really caused me to question what is changing in the world of sales. Uh, in the world of B2B sales in particular. Um, I think one of the most commonly, I wouldn't call myths, commonly held myths, but I think one of the biggest shifts that I'm seeing in the world of sales uh, or marketing is a shift away from, you know, a very simplistic view of lead generation uh, and a much stronger move towards um selling to an account, but also uh, changing how we engage with clients uh, and also who gets to be involved uh, as part of that. And I think that we haven't experienced such a strong acceleration in those trends as we have in the last 12 months. This has been brewing for quite some time, right? Um, yeah. But I, but I, 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 I really felt that in terms of how we've grown our business and how we've been enabling and developing our teams. Um, and I think that that is only going to accelerate, right? If you think about, you know, we've been talking about the consumerization of B2B buying for a while now, right, Paul? And it's, uh, you know, <laughs> we've been talking about that for a while. Um, and, you know, I, I, the way I look at it is like, if you show up offering a demo, offering a white paper, uh, or placing a cold call to your ICP um, or a lead form on your website, um, you're basically taking a water pistol to a gunfight, right? Um, and, you know, I think the time the buyer spent today self-serving has simply skyrocketed. Um, I don't need to quote data, but I think if you do a quick Google search, you, just, you can just see for yourself that they're educating themselves. They're actually making purchasing decisions and trying out new products and services before they ever speak to your sales team, right? Uh, and we see that with you two a lot as well. Uh, and what this means is that when you do finally speak to you, not only are you having much shorter interactions, right, as salespeople, um, but your client is engaging with a lot more of your competitors than they used to. Because guess what? They're not, they're not waiting for them to come to their offices anymore. They're not holding two-day workshops, one-hour demos, right? So when you're thinking, if you're selling like it's 2015, thinking that you're having an initial conversation and at the early stages of a sales cycle, your prospect, your prospect is already at least 10 steps ahead of you. And so, and so I think one of the big misconceptions is that um, we can still sell like we used to and that also that buyers, that you're selling to an individual and that buyers, um, on, you know, they're aligned with you and your sales cycle. That could, I think that, you know, we're seeing more and more that's not the case. Mm. 
This is a fascinating... I'd like to explore a couple of things with you because I know you said in a presentation that you gave at SAS World, uh, what are uh, the exact words you used, but the message was that as a senior executive that you have these requirements at any given time. You might be in recruitment mode or you might have a need for some tool, whatever it is. But that somebody cold calling you has no sense of that and therefore they can't be... You were talking about personalizing their approach and they can't be that relevant because they don't know exactly what you're looking for at that moment. And so that the question came popped into my head was, well, how would I find that out? How hmm. would I know that right now you might be, let's say I, I had recruitment services, that right now that you had that requirement, unless I put in a call to you and said, look, this might not be relevant, but we help organizations find talent, yada, yada, yada. And hmm. you might go, look, that's not relevant to you now, but, but thanks for calling. Or you might say, actually, I'd be interested in knowing a little bit more. That's... That's often framed as the old way and that there's a new way. And I, 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 I'm still not, I'm still of the view that, or I guess it's not the view that it works because it's not ideal. But if you don't have that, how would I ever know what it was unless you went out online and put something out there, which you can't rely on everybody to do that. Not everybody is posting the requirements. So, yeah, I'm mm. not talking because my question is, how would I know? Yeah, I think I think when I when I talked about this topic, I was talking about the fact that just because I am your ideal customer profile doesn't mean I'm in the market right now, right? Um, and it means that you might be you might be able to get uh, a contract done with somebody who isn't your ideal customer profile, but happens to be in the market right now, right? Um, uh, and that's probably not going to lead to success. But look, I think um, g going back to what I was saying, um, the shift in buyer behavior uh, to digital has increased like exponentially. Um, most of the research that a buyer does throughout the different stages um, of buying um, and the consumption of knowledge is now happening on digital. Right. And so um, technology, I think, is a key uh, component uh, in terms of answering your question. Um, you know, it, at G2 in particular, you know, we talk about these buyers that come to G2. Right. We don't hold 70 million email addresses, right? 70 million people that come to G2. Um, but we do hold consent to identify um, where they're coming from where they're based, who they work for, right? And so um, we can serve up to our G2 customers information on whether uh, a company is in the market right now for a CRM solution, an ERP solution. And if they happen to be, which vendors are they considering, right? Um, how many different people from how many different regions are currently engaging? And what we're seeing more and more with technology is that that's only part of the puzzle. Um, but we have now um, a number of technologies that allow you to also do the same on your website, right? There are, te there are technology providers um, who offer the same kind of buyer, we call this buyer intent, buyer intent signals from the wider web, 
right? Mm. So you're able to marry information that says um, people from G2 in EMEA have been researching recruitment providers, um, let's say on G2, right? Um, you've had people from uh, the same company on your website recently, <laughs> and these people are also registering for um, webinars. Um, they are accessing uh, websites of uh, HR services, publications to read content. Mm. You've now got that information and you've got the technographic information that validates that they are your ideal customer profile. So you've got technographic, you've got uh, intent. Um, what you can do is you can wait and see if they're ever going to reach up, uh, reach out and, 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 and contact you. Or you can serve that information to your sales team, right? Because your yeah. sales team, by the time they get contacted, um, they probably already made that made up their mind. So I think technology, I think people underestimate what technology allows us to do, but also the fact that it's not just up to sales. A lot of that technology sits within the marketing team, right? And so when we think about how sales is changing and how you can get uh, ahead, uh, it's the technology stack, but then it's also widening the sales collaboration, really working closely with your marketing organization to move the client along that buyer journey and understand where they are so that you are going in only at the right time with the right context and the right message. Yes. Yeah. Actually, I've had a little bit of a light bulb moment as you're talking in terms of understanding this because I always had a, a mental block around the whole concept of buyers holding one hand up to say, I have intent, I have some interest here, because that leaves out, at least it did in my head, it leaves out companies that are bringing something new and innovative to the market, whereby nobody's actually searching that. The, you know the old adage that, I think it was Henry Ford said that people don't want faster, what was he, he said something about faster horses. Uh, oh yeah, if, 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 if he, here's what he said. If people, if he asked his customers what they wanted, they'd save faster horses. But right. actually what they really wanted was to get to their destination quicker, sooner. Right. And so if you're, if you're in, the, in the business of faster transport, getting to your destination faster, I always had the, the mental block with, with sites like uh, G2 was that, well, how would you know? Well, I, the answer is, I think, come to me is, you monitor people looking for faster horses. Mm. And then yeah. you approach them with yeah. the right message. Yeah, and I'll tell you one of the one of the biggest challenges, you know, that have has existed for a long time is how do you piece all of this stuff together? You know, um, we've seen a lot of technology focused demand generation um, in the last few years. You know, you, you've seen people with titles like head of growth or head of demand gen, and these are people sometimes that have like developer backgrounds because they're piecing all of these data points together and building algorithms, doing integrations. But what has happened as well in the last few years is we've gone from this world of, you know, um, outbound, dumb marketing automation, right? Direct marketing, you know, um, to these systems that really are pre already pre-integrated with all these data sources, right? Whether it's G2, whether it's um, third-party intent buyer intent data providers or first party, the ones that sort of monitor your website. Um, you now have marketing automation platforms or a lot of people just put them under the same umbrella as account-based marketing platforms, right? Mm. Which 
pull the data, score your accounts, right? Um, and, and then also is able to not only um, drive that outbound engagement, but also put that information in the hands of your sales teams inside the CRM systems, or even um, build um, out um, ad campaigns across those accounts in the right channels, in the right regions, right? And so it's kind of like, um, you know, I think we're coming really full circle on this real integration of data, automation, um, and then systems of record and engagement, uh, whether it's your marketing automation systems or, or your CRMs, uh, it's making it a lot easier. And I think that um, uh, a lot of sales teams are waking up to that fact. Uh, uh, but I, I think the, the momentum is still is still getting there. And, and I think especially in marketing teams, as I was saying, there's still a lot of um, still a lot of um, skepticism, right? Uh, in terms of no, I need a lead form. I need people to leave their details. Um, I, I need to know who it is. I need to know, I need to know that it was Paul because I need to, I need to find Paul, right? Um, with just regard to the fact that if your company is buying something, there's probably going to be six or seven of you that are going to be involved, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and so it's a very, it's a very fun time to be in sales and marketing. Yeah, I can imagine. I, there's a organization, a very major Fortune 50 company and uh, I was doing some work with them and one of the marketing guys in there had this idea to build a lead nurturing program for people who had engaged but had gone off the boil and they had this idea so they're targeting sales sales and marketing leaders and they asked me to do a some interviews with them on given topics related to prospecting etc and that was all fine it was like podcast type setup and then the guy, after a, after a couple of months or so, when it was up on their system, he sent me a link to it. And, and I was curious to know what it looked like. I had to click seven times and fill in two forms to get to it. And I can guarantee you, if it wasn't self-interest, if I wasn't looking for myself, I would have given up after the first hurdle. It was just mad, madness that they saw. Yeah, I, I, I can empathize. Um, let me just move on just a little little bit. Tell me a little bit about what maybe what lesson that your role has taught you that you think everybody should learn at some point in their life. Wow. We're going deep here. Um, look, um, I think feeling comfortable with giving more than taking. Um, you know, I... I feel very comfortable talking about success in the plural and what my collective have managed to achieve and also comfortable about owning failures in the singular. Um, and, and I look, I, you know, I think one of the reasons that I credit the fact that I feel I had a good sales career so far, um, even, even as an individual contributor is that you know, we're always in it for our clients rather than for ourselves. Um, and anyway, as a sales leader, being in it for your team rather than for yourself, I think is something that I've just really learned to feel comfortable with. Um, and when you look at, when you look at the market as well, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, the whole balance of power has shifted from, you know, has shifted from the salesperson to the buyer, right? For all the reasons we discussed. Um, and so you know, you're walking into discussions with clients with a huge information deficit, right? 
they know more about your company and how you're better than your competitors, or how your competitors might be better than you. And then they probably know more about their industry than you do. And so being comfortable with that and showing up with a level of humility and acceptance that there's a lot for you to learn, I think is what breeds that curiosity, that desire to, to offer more than, than ask in return. And I think that for me, that's been a constant in my career. And I've, I've really tried to, I've really tried to own that. Um, and share that philosophy with my with my with my teams. Um, so I was a bit of a ramble, but like, like for me, it's yeah. No, 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 it's good. It's good. I, I, and, and you mentioned in that about being comfortable owning success in the plural, which I which I was interested in. What would you say first of all is your definition of success, if you have one? Definition of success, I think, is. Mm. Um, at any given point in time, I guess, feeling like you wouldn't rather be doing anything else than what you're doing, right? Um, yeah. Given the choice, would I rather be doing something else than, than working on this? And sometimes what you're doing might be, might be very painful. It might be a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. But I think also embracing the struggle and what you feel it can give back to you, I think is really important. So for me, that's, that, that's success. Um, and, uh, and I also say, I also think I, I get a lot of happiness out of um, celebrating success in a collective. Um, what's the fun in celebrating on your own, right? Mm. But it means a lot more sense, it makes a lot more sense to me now that when you frame it that way as well, Enrique, because when you're saying success is about uh, being in, you know, happy with what you're doing, being really content and engaged in, and, and, and in the moment with it, is that when you talk about that, then it makes sense in the, in, in the plural, then what you're doing is you're creating a community that is in a good place. And that, that in itself is energizing. You, you, can, you can feed off that as well. Um, so yeah. that's, that's, and I, that's and a and wonderful I, yeah. definition of success. Yeah, and I think it's not about it's not about getting to a destination, right? That's what I'm saying. It's 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 not wanting to be doing anything else rather than what you're doing right now because it's enjoying yeah. the process rather than where you know where you have arrived or where you want to get to, um, and just doing it around people that you really enjoy. Um, I you know I I want to build really personal and deep relationships with people that I work with because. I believe that if I do that, I will enjoy my work, right? Mm. Um, and so that for me is very important in order to feeling successful um, uh, and enjoying the ride. Yeah, and, and that it, it's, it, I think that's probably comes from the conscious being self-aware as well. I think that's hugely important to it. Um, you mentioned, at the start, Enrique, that you were fortunate to be given a, you know, a good education. You went to a uh, good school, etc. I'm curious to know what you think uh, if schools could add one mandatory subject to the curriculum, what would it be and why? I really, I, I really, I, from a position of doing what I do, I wish I'd learnt more about um coding personally 
I'd never fancy myself a computer scientist or a developer, but you know, I built a I built a business career and a sales career on top of technology. Um, and again, a lot of the success that I had was on exploring technicalities in terms of what we do. You know, um, whether it's integrations, whether it's the software development life cycles. Um, I don't think that there is a more universal language than coding today, right? If you build an application, if you build an application, you can connect people of any languages in, in any location in the world. Uh, I think that's, that's probably the most universal um, connected tissue uh, in the world. And, and again, you know, we all learned a number of subjects in school <laughs> that probably taught us how to think, but probably didn't really give us you know, tools or assets that we could leverage. But I, I find it hard yeah. to believe that anyone in any profession will not be working in some way in a digital, in a digital world. Um, and I think it's a real level. I think it's a really, it really levels the playing field as well. Um, but yeah, I think I'm probably biased in terms of the kind of career that I've, that I've sort of decided to build. But, um, and also I, I can't code to save my life. Right. But, um, but I'd love to understand how that, I'd love to understand more about, um, you know, yeah. about coding in general. Well, I, it's funny you say that because, uh, it, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that answer. And it's fascinating because I spent two years as a software engineer. Now it's a long time ago. And what, what there's a, like, first of all, is the skills are out of date pretty fast. And I'm sure mm -hmm. it's the same nowadays as well. I know the languages are different and the process is different. But what it does teach, and I think this is why I loved your answer, and I, why I would agree with you, it should be added, is that it teaches two things, or at least it taught me two things, problem solving and abstract thinking. Because when you're coding, you're, well, certainly, again, I know I'm going back a bit. It never works first time. So you, you, you put your head to, uh, into a problem and the you, you press go and you don't get the answer you're expecting. So now you have to go back in and root cause it and figure it out. And of course, there's other traits that you need as well with that, such as persistence, not giving up, yada, yada, yada. And the other thing I think is abstract thinking in terms of you can't be thinking in terms of bits and bytes. You have to be thinking about messaging and what's, what's, what's happening in out there and you know I sent a message and I'm expecting back so it's 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 it certainly for me it was a different kind of thinking that came with it again I only did it for two years I was never good enough at it to make a living out of it but certainly I I, I would 100% agree with you I think it would be hugely valuable even if you never used it from a work perspective to go out and, and, and code professionally I think it's, it'd be a great skill for sure uh, listen we, we are coming up close on the clock, Enrique, and quick questions for you before I let you go. Uh, what one thing have you done that nobody knows about you? Um, I guess... Okay, here's one. Uh, I sold, um, I sold uh, shots at nightclubs to help pay for my um, postgraduate degree <laughs> in London, um, half naked. Um, so okay, uh, in okay. my twenties. You know I, I, when you said I'd sold shots at a nightclub, I go, yeah, come on, that's pushing at an open door. 
think you got my no, attention. Paul, I was I was a tequila boy. I was a tequila boy for a while. Um, that's something a lot of people don't and know. And then you worked for a company called Tequila. How how cool is that? Funny story, huh? <laughs> that's 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 pretty. Oh, that's that's cool. Uh, last question for you before I let you go. What one book have you read that's made a serious impact on your worldview? Um, I think one book I really enjoyed, and if you've come across it before, is uh, Reboot by Jerry Colonna. Um, so Jerry, Jerry's actually a coach for a lot of um, CEOs, uh, and it really challenges you to think about uh, how work in particular can be a powerful force to help us become the best person we can be. Um, and it's, uh, it's really impacted how I, how I, how I work through my struggles, um, and how I add meaning to what I do and why I do it every day. Mm. Um, he also has a great podcast, which touches a lot of the concepts of his book. It's called Reboot. Um, Reboot. Okay. Yeah. I'll put a link to that. That's, that sounds like it, it, it's something that others would get some value from as well. It's a kind of universally applicable uh, idea. Good stuff. Um, it's been fascinating to talk to you. I, it's a shame our time is up. I could talk to you all day. Thank you very much for being my guest today. Appreciate you having me. It's been fun. Not at all. My, my great pleasure. I'd love to do it again sometime with you. Maybe. I, I was Actually, there was one final, sorry, to, to a PS, if you like. Um, what's next if you're kind of thinking maybe three five years down the line where where do you see yourself going after after your current patch um i'm really i'm i'm just really passionate about um entrepreneurship uh, mm. and building building businesses and teams that create lasting impact uh and relationships that you know i can continue to rely on uh, for personal growth I, you know, as I was saying, I, I came to this country to try and build a career. Um, and I've had the privilege now of bringing two US businesses to Europe. Um, I think in the future, I would love to be able to take a European company uh, global. Um, and I still have a dream one day of uh, starting and leading a business of my own. Um, I've always sought opportunities to put my stamp um, on things, and and that's why I continue to to, to to strive for, you know, bigger opportunities where I can do that. Um, so I think what's next for me, you know, after G two at some point is to do something that is from Europe to the world. Um, I think that we're ready for that, um, and then maybe maybe take that plunge, and and build from scratch. Fantastic. Well, my guest today has been Enrique Aragon, and he is the general manager and VP at G2 for EMEA. Uh, if, if you got some value from listening to this, please consider subscribing, and I look forward to hearing from you on the next podcast.